Starting in verse 1. John 7. Reading up to verse 10. Follow what I think, not what I say. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. This, by the way, is six months after the events that were unfolding in John chapter 6. We're going from feast to feast, basically. We're going from the feast of Passover, and now we're fast-forwarding. Uh, basically from the April time frame to the December, I'm sorry, the October time frame, which is now the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And to take a pause here, there are three major feasts in Israel. Uh, the Old Testament kind of talks about five of them, but some of them are grouped together. And the ones that are most kind of intensely grouped together are the three at the end of the year, the end of their year, and, and those are tabernacles, trumpets, or, or, or Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. Uh, I grew up in a Jewish community, and I used to really love those holidays because we got them off from school. So that was kind of a big deal. No idea what Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur was, uh, but could sort of pronounce them. So I had that going for me. But they are no small thing. And, and on the Jewish calendar... This is a very solemn, it is the most solemn time of year. And, and even though there's pretty good press biblically for Passover and Pentecost, the other two feast seasons of the year, Passover and Pentecost, they, they occur typically in April and May, respectively. But this one occurs in the fall, and it combines this idea of Rosh Hashanah into Yom Kippur, and then, and then uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year, would be a time where there were the days of awe or the days of repentance. So we're catching this crowd here in throughout all of John 7. We're going to have a couple sermons on John 7. Throughout all of this time in John 7, this crowd would have gathered for a deep time of introspection, contemplation, and contrition. This would be a time to really reflect on your year. And interestingly, at this time in the first century, Jews would come and deeply come to a point of confession and hopefully godly sorrow on their part and and to prepare themselves for 10 days from the first day of the year, which is Rosh Hashanah, through those 10 days of awe for Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And that's the, the, the great day where all Israel is made atoned for through the, the goat and the scapegoat. There's a lot that you can look up on, on that. And that'll be interesting if you, if you do so through the Old Covenant. But I, I say all of this to say that it would have been at this point in time when the Jews would have been the most solemn, the most zealous for all things God. And it, also the temple area would have been a time with that great zeal and with the oppression of the Romans it would have been very much a powder keg of tension as well at this time. And for Jesus to enter into this with a death sentence, there, there is, you know, like Salman Rushdie, I don't know if you remember years ago, uh, Salman Rushdie had a, a, a price on his head by all of Islam because he dared to speak against some of the uh, more bizarre practices of Islam in a book that he had written. 
Uh, but, but there was a price on his head. And I remember at that time thinking like, whoa, how hard it must be to be this guy. Like if he goes in the wrong place or kind of uh, uh, circulates in the wrong crowd, they're, they're out to kill him. And I remember feeling that tension in the news at the time, but didn't really appreciate that this is Jesus's life for the last half of his ministry. And, and for this final session, imagine Jesus needing to train up the 12, needing to perform the signs that would kind of uh, uh, fertilize the soil so that the gospel message would be able to go forth from the 12, needing to be able to love and serve and stop and encourage and all that he does and doing all of that with a, a sword hanging over his head or literally a cross casting a shadow over every activity that he does. And my, my goodness, here he, he even recognizes that if he goes to Judea right now, if he goes to that feast, there is a good chance that the plot to kill him could unravel pretty quickly. So that's, that's the, the backdrop of, of this. And also the Feast of Tabernacles had more than a few uh, characteristics to it. Yes, it was a time where you would spend a whole week in, in booths or tents or tabernacles. Uh, tabernacle is just a fancy word for a tent. Why? Because it was to commemorate the 40 years that their ancestors spent in the desert under the provision of God, awaiting entrance into his rest, into the promised land. And so the Feast of Tabernacles would have been commemorating that. It's a long period of time that, that goes 17 days. And somewhere in the middle of this, Jesus is going to head into this feast, maybe in the middle of the days of awe or maybe in the middle of the time where they're in these tabernacles. But either way, it is a heightened intensity that he enters here. Jesus's brothers. Uh, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, verse three, Jesus's brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. His disciples there uh, may have been the disciples of John 6 and may have been a lot of the ones that left him. Some people even speculate that at this point in time, he's down to the 12. And that when all the others, when he said, you don't want to leave also, do you? And it's Peter speaking for the 12 saying, where are we going to go? You got the words of each other. You know, th this is where we need to be. This is the only place where we can be. It may have whittled all the way down to that because of the intensity and the polarization of Jesus's claims and teaching. And now his brothers, I, I guess it's hard to be Jesus's brother if your brother's got a, a price on his head. And, and I'm not sure what their motivation is here, but they are maybe trying to say, you know what, maybe if you could go and deal with everybody, it'll be less awkward than if we have to go and be asked about you every single moment that we're at this festival. But I don't know how that actually went down. But he said, go so your disciples there may see the works you do. Again, there may be no disciples left there. And then, and then they give him this advice. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Mark 3.21 says at about this time that his brother and his family not only didn't believe in him, but they thought that he was out of his mind. That's the literal words that Mark used of how his brothers viewed their big brother, Jesus. And, and I love that these unbelieving brothers presume to give Jesus ministry advice here. 
Verse 6. Therefore, Jesus said to them, told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. And so the title of this lesson tonight is A Date with Hate. And this date is a date for Jesus that has everything to do with God's timing. Jesus does everything with full dependence upon the Lord, waiting to be guided, waiting to be told, and waiting to see the unveiling of God's will. And it's a beautiful dependence that Jesus has, but I think it's also an intense confidence that he has as well by having this real dependence upon the Father himself. And, and I think for us, when we think about what's the right timing for, for something, again, Jesus says to his brothers, any time's fine for you. You know why? Because you're not doing anything significant. So, so what? Go, don't go. It doesn't matter. You're not doing anything epic. So God's probably not even arranging anything for you anyway. Other than maybe to help you to believe at some point in time. But you're not on a mission from God. You're not in a, a holy adventure. But he is. But you know who else is? You are. You're on a mission from God. You're on a holy adventure. And God does prepare these, these times. And the word here for time, there are two, two uh, Greek words. We've, we've had lessons on this in the past. But there are two Greek words for time. One is chronos, where we get words like chronology and chronometer. And it's this idea of a, of a length of time, a measurement of time with, with, with chronos. That's not the word that's being used here. There's another sense of time, and we use it ourselves, like, hey, wasn't Sunday a really good time? You remember that time where that guy connected and hit the ball out of the park? It doesn't have to do with some sort of duration of time, but certain pregnant, beautiful, opportune intersections of moment and opportunity and time and place that all come together in a beautiful explosion where, in, in this case, God's will can be done. Think about the moment when somebody intersected your life in order to disrupt you and help you to know about Jesus. To help you know about Jesus unfiltered. That all was a beautiful orchestration of God bringing himself to you. And that was, in, in the Greek, a kairos moment. Kairos is the word for opportunity. For a pregnant moment. Pregnant with beautiful divine backdrop that is of design that is going to be able to make a massive difference. And you all are living epic lives as well. You are the body of Christ. You are Jesus for Hampton Roads. Where you go, what you do is not just kind of happenstance. Where you go, what you do is not where Jesus says, you know what? Go anywhere, do anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're insignificant. You're insignificant to the very purpose of God. Jesus wouldn't say that to any of you here because you are massively significant. 
And you have dates with destiny that have been arranged from before all time. Colossians 4.2 says, make the most of every kairos moment. The, the word that's used here. Make the most of every kairos moment. And as, as you think through how ta- God has already, according to Acts 17, has arranged time and space and place and opportunity for every human being. Why? So that they might seek God. And you're part of that. You don't live lives that matter nothing to the grand scheme of things. You matter greatly. And to, and to recognize that you're not just schmoes bumping along, but to always walk in prayerful anticipation. Even as Colossians 4.2 says, always be watchful and prayerful. Why? Because these Kairos moments are popping up all the time around us. And, and God is excited that you're going to have the opportunity to be involved in those Kairos moments where, where someone's life and the trajectory of their generations is radically shifted because you have a date with that destiny that's there. But you know, that date is also for Jesus and for you a date with hate. Because as he says here to, to, to those that are of the world, his brothers even, they don't hate you. You know why they don't hate you? Because you pander to the world. Because you're looking to get approval from the world. And because you're so deeply invested in the world liking you, it just makes sense that you're going to do stuff that is perhaps even compromising at times to curry favor with the world. But not him and not you. Jesus says for himself, you know what? Since he says the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, verse 7. And here's the biggest reason. Because I testify that its works are evil. The biggest reason why the, the, the world uh, hates Jesus is because he goes there. He's willing to get deep. He's willing to go there with the, the very issue. I, I think uh, as Sarah was sharing, uh, the, the, or I'm sorry, as James was sharing with Devin, uh, how they're, they're in there every day and, and now they're really getting deep with core issues. Core issues that are keeping their friend from being able to surrender all and give his life to Jesus. And what they've been doing is helping to expose his sin, reprove that sinful behavior, and, and show him the path of righteousness. To show him that these sinful activities are not just little, hey, boys will be boys, uh, hijinks moments, but these things are evil. Evil at their core. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm just a prideful dog. Uh, ha, 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 ha. No, that's evil. That's what made the devil the devil. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, sure, I, I, I lost. Well, look, but don't touch. No, Eve, I mean, the, the Bible talks about what, to, to objectify another human being, someone made in the image of God, and, and to so objectify them for your own just kind of personal lusts is such an affront to God who, who made that person and you as well in the imago Dei, in the image of God. Whatever it might be. And I think if we're going to really help people come to a deep appreciation of their need for Jesus, we do have to go there as well. And we've got to not just kind of self-improve people's way to Jesus Christ, but to ultimately get to this place that Jesus had to get to again and again with so many people 
uh, to help them to see the, not just the bankruptcy of sin, but the depth of evil of, of sin. And, and as such, then to help people to be able to turn away from that. Um, you know, Proverbs 1.8 says, do not walk. I think Tim preached on this passage a little while ago. You don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And that's what his brothers want to be doing for him right now. Is his brothers are of the world. They don't even believe in their brother. But it's amazing the capacity of pride and darkness to presume here the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the, the one who has done miracles... And, and he's already done these miracles. He's already shown himself to his disciples repeatedly through, through multiple signs. And yet his brothers are this, you know, Jesus, you need a better strategy. I think we should be your counsel on how you can kind of bring this good news stuff that you're always talking about, this kingdom of God stuff. Why don't you follow our advice? That's a frightening prospect. That's like going to Madison Avenue to get advice on how to be a prophet. You couldn't have two more antithetical ideas. How to appeal to the world or how to expose the world. And again, we're not meant to be purposefully unappealing or repulsive, but nonetheless, we're also not meant to ever just be pandering to that degree to, to, to the world because you'll never... See the effectiveness of the gospel. People will never be able to see their desperate need for good news unless they see the desperate stench of evil that has been attended to, to life there. Um, amen. They're off for baptism. Praise God. Um, let me. There's an article in Christianity Today about um, 15 years ago. And the article read Whatever happened to repentance? It followed on a, another, another book that was popular, another 10 years before that. And that book was titled, Whatever Happened to Sin? Both of those articles were written in evangelical publications. And it was the evangelical world realizing that they had somehow gotten so far afield that they were trying to just schmooze people into the kingdom of God. And, and realizing what that was producing uncommitted consumers who had such a sense of entitlement that unless my children are entertained, unless my marriage is fully enriched, unless my own need for entertainment is, is um, satisfied, unless all of those conditions are met, then I'm not going to be part of this church, that fellowship. That's, that's what you get when you, you try to kind of Compete in the marketplace. But America is filled with consumers thinking they are Christians. And we've got a big job to do. Because we're not just imitating Jesus. We're imitating Jesus to a culture that has bought into the idea that that's what it is to be in Jesus. To be an entitled, self-focused consumer. How many times have you even heard people say, I'm just church shopping right now? That's a frightening idea. But that's what his brothers are basically saying to him. Maybe if you can kind of put on a better show and overwhelm them 
with all these beautiful wonders that you can do, maybe that's what's going to really help you to be effective in the way that you want to be effective. And, and likewise, you can think, well, maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to just have more just kind of funny stories that make people feel warm and fuzzy. Maybe we need to kind of invest more in smoke machines and you know, kind of a bigger show up, up front. Less word of God, more show. My goodness, how many churches do that, that that pursue the megachurch model? That happens again and again. Maybe we should just kind of have just lessons that just kind of speak to the kind of the, the, the comforting of, of Jesus. Not all aspects of Jesus, including the, 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 the afflicting of, of the comfortable from Jesus. And you're going to be pressured into that. I'm going to be pressured into that. And we collectively need to hold the line. Okay, we're not meant to, you know, not, Jesus says, the, the, you know, blessed... Blessed are the persecuted. He doesn't, he doesn't say blessed are the obnoxious. Right? We're, we're blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, not obnoxiousness sake. So we're not going to be purposefully obnoxious, but we are going to be righteous and we're going to be uncompromising and we're going to help people to realize that sin has no place in the kingdom of God. And it's going to be a hard teaching. We're going to have to get real. We have to get deep in this. But otherwise, grace doesn't have its full impact. Grace has an impact where people are forgiven much. How do they know how much they're forgiven? Because they realize how much they've sinned. And he who has sinned much is forgiven much. And so we go there. And, and let me encourage you. There, there's times where you might think you want to follow the advice of the unbelieving little brother uh, trying to guide Jesus. That's going to be the times you think, well, yeah, but why? Why do we practice church discipline? Do we really have to do that? Why do we kind of give so much money to special missions? What if we kind of use that for kind of more entertaining stuff that we do here? Why do we meet in a back corner of a, of a, of a what's this place called here? Um, no, industrial park. Why are we in the back of some industrial park? You know, in, in some area here, where instead of like in a kind of a, a nice gothic looking place, and we could, we could take all that money and, and, and put it towards things like that. You know why? Because all of our efforts are designed to go towards discipleship. To help people see their need for Christ and to be raised up and trained up in Christ. Jesus says to build the church by going and making disciples, teaching them to obey everything. And so our resources all go into that. You can listen to the siren call of the world and buy into that. And it's very easy to do. But let me encourage you. The, the minute that you start to buy into that, realize that are you more in league with the unbelieving brothers or more in league with Jesus of how it is that he wants to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. And so as a, uh, as a final maybe discussion point, if you have a chance, is discuss in your small groups how you can testify to the world without being worldly. Let's go ahead and break to our groups. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah.